a new series today, and that series has a notebook, set of notes that go with it, and Ken and John and Larry have some, so they're going to come up here and then head back that way and distribute a set of notes to you. Now, please try to remember to bring those with you each week, and as those notes are being distributed, you all are finding a seat. I'll just mention some things that are coming up. There is a meeting for those who are going on the Mexico missions trip after we're finished with our services, 12.30 in the impact zone cafeteria, and there'll be another one next week, so two meetings, two Sundays in a row for those that are part of the Mexico missions team. As we mentioned in the announcements today and as is printed in your program, we have a couple of outreach events coming up for which we're looking for some volunteers. This weekend, we have rented a a space, a booth, at the Trenton Summer Festival, and that runs Friday through Sunday. Uh, So we need folks who could take a couple of hours, uh, uh, whatever time frame you can, but uh, take some time to man the, the booth. We're handing some stuff out at the booth. I don't know whether when Pastor Matt made the announcements in the first hour, if you were here, if he said we have a booth. He said we were going to be handing stuff out. And I think it's important for you to know that'll be via booth, as opposed to you just wandering around handing stuff out to to people. So you won't be doing that. You'll be sitting at a table, and anybody who stops by, then you will will give uh, the... We have a couple of things, a couple items that we're going to hand out. So we just need some people who are available... Uh, one or more of those days for whatever period of time you are available to, uh, to help with that. And if you can, then let the folks at the information center know before you leave today. Uh, we have that as one of the checkoff boxes on the connection card that's in the bulletin. So you can check that off and turn it in saying, I'm willing to volunteer. And then uh, the folks that are heading that up will get back with you, find out when you're available and schedule you. So that's one. Now, the event is this weekend, but in preparation for the event, uh, we need to um, make some, do some work on uh, the items we're going to be handing out. And that's going to be Wednesday, right? At what time? So Wednesday at 6.30, if you can come to help assemble some of the things that we're going to be handing out, that'd be helpful. We already have some folks who have volunteered to do that. So you can volunteer for either or both of those, come Wednesday night or to help this weekend and or help this weekend. Uh, So please be aware of that, 6.30 here. And if you can help Wednesday, let the folks at the Information Center know that you can uh, help assist us in that regard. And then the other outreach uh, event we have this summer is in August. August 5th through 9th is our first annual Vacation Bible School. So we're excited about the opportunity to have a Vacation Bible School. We've never been able to do that because we haven't had a facility. So we're kind of geeked about the possibilities of reaching some kids and getting to know some families in the neighborhood here. Uh, But we need all hands on deck for that. So if you can help with that, uh, we need to know. And if you just say, I'm willing to make myself available, tell me what the task list is. And if there's something or things on there that I can do, then I'm willing to, to try to make it happen. Uh, you don't have to teach. You know, you don't, we certainly aren't going to have you do something outside your gift zone and ability and comfort zone. But there are lots of things to be done behind the scenes in preparation for. There's scenery that has to be set up. There's all kinds of things, okay? So that, too, can be checked on the connection card or and uh, turned in at the information center to let us know. And then Jenny Jones, who's heading that up, will get with you about uh, what the task list is. 
So those are some volunteer items, Trenton Summer Festival and uh, Vacation Bible School. And then uh, just a few announcements. Next Saturday, this coming Saturday, is Nolan Gagne's open house, graduation open house. We've had two already, and Nolan's going to have his this Saturday from 1 to 5 here at the uh, Ministry Center. And then on July 21st, Michelle Llewellyn has hers, and hers is going to be in uh, West Westland. So mark July 21st for that. In between, we have a backyard uh, fellowship on July 10th, that'll be, it's a Wednesday night, it'll be at Wendy and Larry Mashinsky's place in uh, Huron Township. And as I was making that announcement, I heard someone just blurt something out in the uh, front row here. I believe it was this lady right here. Yes, please. Oh, uh, well, it's in the uh, program as uh, the, um, the uh, graduation open house for Michelle Llewellyn says it's in Westland, but it's actually in Wayne. And people in Wayne do not want to be confused with people in Westland, Okay. So you make sure you don't make the mistake of putting in the bulletin Westland or saying Westland in the presence of a Wayneite. And we have, all right. All right, thank you. When We Have to Choose, series on decision-making and the will of God. And we're going to start that today, and we're going to continue it over the next several weeks with the notes that I think everybody has in front of them. Larry has some in hand. Does anybody not have a set of notes? If you do not, put your hand up and Larry will get some to you. Everybody have? Second Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5. You don't need to turn there, but you can if you want to check up on me. Uh, but in Second Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5, uh, Paul who wrote that says that we endeavor to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, you think about a phrase like that, we endeavor to take every thought captive. That brings the Christian life down to a very minute level, doesn't it? Because the way we think about the Christian walk, we think about the big stuff. But Paul says, it's in how I think, it's in all my thoughts. And are those captive to the obedience of, of Christ? And as we look at decision-making in the will of God, in fact, even today in the first lesson, we're going to see that indeed there are decisions that we make that are insignificant decisions. Whether you choose this one or that one in the grand scheme doesn't matter. But to know that it doesn't matter requires that you have to be aware of what does matter. So you can't just assume what does not matter you have to be able to actually identify the things that really matter and the things that about which it makes little difference or no difference. But the only way you can make that determination is to know what matters. And so to bring every thought to, captive to the obedience of Christ means that we have to do some serious thinking about why I'm here and then in turn how all of the choices that I make fit into pursuing the purpose for which I'm here. And that is what this series is going to try to help us to do. It's going to try to assist us in eliminating compartments in our lives. If you're going to be a 2 Corinthians 10.5, bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, if we're going to be that, then we have to be people who don't live in compartments. We don't have a God. There is no such thing as a God compartment. God owns the whole complex. Okay? He owns all the boxes. And that's what is assumed in 2 Corinthians 10.5, the lordship of Christ over everything, over every aspect of our lives. 
So I don't have a separate box that is recreation and leisure. And a separate box that is work. And a separate box that is education. And a separate box that is family. Rather, all of those areas of life, they are not separate from the obedience to the, obedience to the Lordship of Christ. And the umbrella of the Lordship of Christ oversees all of those and encompasses all of those. So to make proper choices, I have to see each area and each decision within each of those areas under the umbrella of the Lordship of Jesus. And so we're going to try to help to, to see that in, in this series. A successful life is really a series of smaller decisions. It's the, it's the summation and the culmination of a series of smaller decisions. And we have to know what those smaller decisions are, how they fit into the larger decisions, and how they advance or retard our ability to move toward the purpose that God has called each of us to. And so that's the reason, then, that we offer this series, When We Have to Choose. Now, if you'll take a look at page 1, the introduction. Just took a drink of the uh, coffee. Sandra, you happy? Look, you've just been looking at the coffee the entire time. You know, because Sandra goes, you make me nervous. Just either drink the coffee or put it down, but I'm afraid you're going to spill it the whole time. I can't concentrate on what you're teaching because I'm looking at that stupid cup of coffee. Okay? But I've got it in hand, and I took a drink, and I'll take another drink. And then we'll go to page one, all right? We all make dozens of decisions every day, some that are big and some that are small. While making choices is simply a fact of life, many people fret and worry, often afraid to make a move for fear of doing the wrong thing. How can I know that my decisions are right? Is there a decision-making process that will afford peace of mind after I've made the choice? In this course, we're going to survey the decision-making principles offered in God's guidebook for life, the Bible. We'll see the Bible provides us with both the purpose toward which our decisions should be directed as well as the means to evaluate them. Your most important decision right now is just saying, I'm going to come over the next few weeks in order to, in order to learn that. And the most important uh, factor in proper decision-making is understanding the source of authority that gives us the purpose and gives us the principles that we're to apply to our decision-making. What is your authority? We say they're genuine believers desire to please God. And they acknowledge the central role of the Bible in guiding us in all aspects of faith and practice. And yet, many use methods to discern God's will that unintentionally undercut the authority of Scripture. And I have an example there. Contrary to popular opinion, feeling led and having peace are not authoritative. Now, some of you know what I mean by that. You've heard that or perhaps you've said that. I make a decision. I think I've made the right decision because I, quote, have peace about it. Or I felt led to do X. Now, what you felt led to do or what you have peace about may have been the right decision. Hear this, but it's not the right decision because you felt something. If it's the right decision, it's right, quite objective, quite apart from this, uh, this peace that, that you might have been seeking in order to referee whether or not this was the right decision. Those are not authoritative. 
And so we'll see how those can be used in inappropriate ways and even harmful ways and instead try to direct our attention toward using the Bible to make our decisions. This course will identify some erroneous approaches to determining the will of God and seek to offer a biblical corrective. We're going to answer questions like this. What is the role of the Bible? Does God have more than one will? Some people believe that. In fact, in lesson one, we correct that. So the answer to that is no. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? What process should be used? Does I make decisions? Is there a single purpose around which all decisions should be made? How do our desires fit into making God-honoring decisions? Now, here are some books that I have found helpful over the years. Uh, we have at least one of these in our resource center right now, and that is the second one listed, Gary Friesen, Decision-Making and the Will of God. And that is, uh, in my humble opinion, that is a classic on this important topic. It is about that thick, but it's very easy to read. And we have a number of copies of it in the Resource Center, and I would encourage you to get it and, and read it. But the one just before that is newer, Kevin DeYoung, Just Do Something, <laughs> a liberating approach to finding God's will. And that is a very good book as well. So I would recommend, all of these are recommended. Friesen's book is available in the Resource Center. John MacArthur's book is an older one, um, small, but, but very good. Uh, but if you had to get, if you were going to get one, I would get Friesen's book and or I would get uh, Kevin DeYoung's book, okay? So there, those are some recommended resources for you. All right, take a look at session one then. Every day we face innumerable choices. Some of them are relatively small and insignificant, usually not much at stake when you choose between wearing a red shirt or a blue shirt or choosing between having a Big Mac for lunch or a Whopper. Other decisions, though, carry great significance for our lives. The choice of which person to marry, what job to take, what house you should buy, all contain the seeds of great changes for the future. Decision time can be a time of great consternation and anxiety for some. It can be a time of great confidence and comfort for others. How you make decisions will affect almost every area of your life, and the framework that you use to make them must be grounded in reality and truth in order to live life the way that God intends for us to live it. So let's look together at some some issues related to our daily decision-making. When it's time to choose, why do decisions bring worry? And there are a few reasons. One is uncertainty about what we know. Uncertainty about what we know. Or if we gave you two blanks, you could say uncertainty about what we don't know. See, decisions bring worry because I don't know everything. And the truth of the matter is I'll never know everything. But some people fret about making the decision because they know there's always something else to know. And if there's always something else to know, then it's nearly impossible for me to pull the trigger and make the decision. So, men, this is why you hate going to the mall with your wife. Because there's always another store. So to make a decision about buying this blouse at this place for this price, there may be a nicer blouse for a better price at the next place. 
So we could walk around the mall pretty much for the rest of our lives and never buy a blouse. Okay. This is why some genius back in the day, I don't know, I haven't been to Fairlane. I have not been to malls in like a long time. I am glad to say, praise the Lord. But uh, back in the day, Fairlane uh, had a U.S. general store there, and that was men's power tools. And that was where men went to wait while their wives wandered the mall, not making any decision. Now, here's the more dangerous thing. Since I can't make a decision about which to buy, I just have to buy them all, in which case the men empty out of the U.S. general store and they go chase their wives and tell them all the stuff they can't buy. So it's uncertainty about what we don't know. There's always something more to know. And so that paralyzes some people in decision-making. Analysis, paralysis by, you've heard that before, analysis, paralysis by analysis. I have to keep analyzing and keep analyzing because there's always something more to know. So why do decisions bring worry? One is because of what we, uncertainty about what we know or don't know. But also uncertainty about what we, what we need. You know, so is, is this the best choice to move me in uh, the direction I need to go, which assumes that I know the direction that I need to go, which in practical terms most people don't. And they don't fit their decisions into their, their direction. So it creates uncertainty. Having not thought about my direction concretely and therefore backing off from that to see how each of my decisions fits into that, then it follows that there's going to be uncertainty. Is this the best choice or not? Do I need this or not? Is this going to be the best way to advance me toward where I need to go? So uncertainty about what we know, about what we need, and uncertainty about what the outcome of a particular choice might be. All kinds of things factor into this worry about the outcome. Now, you know, nobody, none of us, uh, wants to make a decision where the outcome is going to be negative. The outcome is going to be bad, to state the obvious. But some people are overly concerned about it not turning out right. And there are a lot of factors that can go into that. A lack of trust in the Lord, a spiritual factor. Another spiritual factor could be pride. If this doesn't turn out right, I'll look bad. And I don't want to, I don't want to look bad to, to other people. And so if you're really worried about how you look to other people, it will be very hard for you to, to make a decision. You know, I'm... Eh, forget how old I am. <laughs> but uh, I used to be able to say that, just, you know, and now all of a sudden it's harder for me to... Harder for, it gets caught about right here when I start to say it. No, I'm, I'm 51, and... In my adult life, I've had a lot of occasion to be on teams and committees of various sorts, both in the church and um, outside the church in my uh, workaday world. And uh, in, in that process, I've seen different people and their approach to decision-making. And I have noticed people who are really worried about the outcome and so worried that they, they can't pull the trigger, they can't make the decision. And their default position is, all right, I'll go along with what you, guys, what you guys decide. And what they really want is for everybody out there who might be affected by it to know it was their decision. 
If things go wrong, it was those guys because they're worried about the outcome. A lot of reasons that people worry about the outcome. So that uncertainty about what we know, about what we need, about what the outcome might be makes decisions hard for many, and it brings on worry and anxiety. Now, what are common approaches that people take? One is based on emotion. So we make decisions on, based on what we, what we sense. S-E-N-S-E, what we sense. You know, I just have sort of a sixth sense about these things, we think. I just sort of have holy hunches about the right decision uh, to make. And this is how the Lord, the Lord leads. The Lord gives me a little bit of just a spiritual oomph where I know this is the thing that I should, I'm convinced this is the thing I should do. So it's based on emotion, feeling, or based on passion, what we want at the moment. So we, if you're undisciplined, and if you're somebody who's impulsive, then you'll make decisions impulsively based upon what, what you want. Now, understand that there are people who are paid professionals to make you think you need something to the point that you now want that, right? So I'm just doing you the favor of reminding you of that. If you're somebody who's impulsive, remember there are people who are paid to make you think you need stuff. Good salespeople do this. That's a phrase they use, create the need. Now, you may not have had that need, but by the time that guy gets done with you, you have the need, right? And they have been so successful at creating the need that now you want and you've got to have. I mean, while supplies last, okay? I mean, if you order, I mean, how many of those infomercials have you seen? If you order within the next 15 minutes... And a week later, if you order within the next 15 minutes, the same thing, okay? Then you'll get this deal and you'll get free shipping and we'll throw in, you know, an extra potato shredder or or whatever it is. So emotion and passion, what we sense, what we want. And at the heart of this is feeling-based choice. But then, thankfully, there is thought and careful consideration. Seeking all available information. Now notice, available information. Not all potential information. Not all information that might be out there in the information database of the universe because you don't have access to that. So it's all available information, making a reasonable attempt to gather available information and then pull the trigger and, and, you make, and make the decision. Now, some of you are thinking, man, really? Just gather the available information and pull the trigger and make the decision? And you're, and you're thinking right now, some of you are going, but what if it doesn't turn out right? Then you say this, I made the best decision I could with the what? Available information. Seeking advice. The Bible certainly commends that, Proverbs. There's wisdom in the company of many counselors. And spending time in God's Word. That's giving thought and careful consideration, taking a prudent approach that we're going to flesh out over the next few weeks. But another way, a negative way, an improper approach is to avoid or delay. 
You know, there's just too many factors here. I'm too scared about it. What if I make the wrong choice? I get all wigged out, so I'll just delay it. And I'll just keep delaying it. I'll keep delaying it. So at the bottom of page two, we ask the question, which of these approaches best describes you? Please think about, about that. So what are common responses once a decision has been made? I mean, these are approaches to making the decision, but then there are responses once the decision itself is made. And one is, you know, I worried about it before the decision, and I'm worried about it after the decision. Anxiety or, or worry. Continually fret and wonder what if. Loss of sleep, second-guessing. People in this category will often make those around them miserable. May even de- develop physical symptoms. Ulcers, anxiety attacks even depression. Now, you know, on a very serious note, you know, how you think affects how we, how we behave, and it often affects how we feel. And this will be therapeutic for you if it will help you, help us, to clarify how we think so that we are free, or at least relatively free, of anxiety and worry and therefore don't have these kinds of symptoms resulting at least from that. They may result from other physical factors, but, but at least not from that. But there are psychosomatic conditions. You know, so suke is, you know, psychology is a study of the, literally suke is a Greek word for soul. So psychology is a study of the soul. But what it really amounts to is a study of the mind. And, uh, and it's mind-body, right? Soma is body, psychosomatic, mind and body. And how you use your mind can affect your body. How you think can affect you physically. And so we need to think biblically. And if we think biblically and we learn to trust God and we learn to use the right factors in making our decisions, then we can, have, we can indeed have peace after the decision is made. So if you want that, hang around for the next few weeks. But these are common responses once a decision has been made. Or one is a kind of cockiness, a self-reassurance, constantly reassuring ourselves that whatever we did was the right thing. Now, um, here's one way that happens. Make a decision. I may have made a selfish decision. I may have made what turns out to be an improper decision. But in God's grace and in His sovereignty, as we're going to see in a bit, He overrules our foolishness. Thanks be to God. That's another thing that gives you comfort. That, Lord, I don't want to do anything foolish, and I do want every thought to be taken captive to the obedience of Christ. But even when I want that and I try to pursue that, I'm still an idiot. And I still make dumb decisions. But th- are you amening when I said I'm an idiot, uh, Bob? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you cl- all right. I'm just wanting to clarify. All right. <laughs> it's the most amens I've gotten in years, you know. <laughs> but you know, isn't it comforting to know that God overrules our foolishness and our sin as well? And so, but but we can make a foolish decision and because God overrules that and it turns out okay, we then think, well, I must have made the right decision. And 
it doesn't mean you made the right decision because it turned out okay. It may just be that you have a gracious God who overruled your wrong decision. And I'm thankful for that. So sometimes after a decision is made, there's this self-reassurance that goes on. And nobody or no thing can persuade the individual differently. But appropriately, there should be just biblical trust. Acting on the principles of God's plan for living is revealed in the Bible and then rest in God's sovereignty for the outcome. It's not blind faith, but a confident trust in God's power and love. So what else then is that that's, you know, before and after. That's what makes it hard for us. But what else is going on when we're making a choice? Well, we need to remember some of these things on pages 3 and 4. One is that God has a plan that He is accomplishing. As the creator and ruler of the universe, God is neither surprised nor troubled by the decisions that face us each day. From the very smallest to the biggest, God is at work. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11 tells us about the God who works all things after the counsel of His will. And so there and in numerous places throughout Scripture you have reference made to the will of God and in particular the number one there, the sovereign will of God. The sovereign will of God. This is God as king of his universe on his throne controlling everything that goes on. (laughs) And using the choices and the dilemmas and the foolishness and the ignorance and the sinfulness of man and it all moves exactly according to his timetable to his appointed end. Yikes, go figure that out. But that's exactly the God we serve. That's exactly the God of the Bible. This is a God who who sweats the details. He doesn't sweat it, but I mean he's involved in the details. He knows the details. You know, you think, well, I know he's sovereign, you know, about like, you know, is Pharaoh going to be, is he going to rule Egypt? You know, is Moses going to be able to get him out of Egypt? I mean, I've seen all that. You know, there's big stuff like that that are made for TV movies that God's involved in. But what about small stuff? So you have, um, you have uh, Jesus saying in Matthew chapter 10 and uh, verse 30, he says um, that not a hair can fall out of your head except it be numbered by your Father in heaven. Your Father knows the very hair, number of the very hairs of your head. And, the, and we say, well, good. God has this big computer brain, and He's got all of these numbers stored in there. He knows how many people there are on earth, how many people have died, how many people were born in what parts of the world, and He's able to keep track of minute stuff like that. It just means God is omniscient. He knows everything. That's what we think, but it means more than that. You see, the reason God knows how many hairs are on your head, Matthew 10.30, is because of Matthew 10.29. And Matthew 10.29 says, Jesus, this is Jesus speaking, are not two sparrows sold for a penny. And yet not one of them falls to the ground, except it be by the will of your Father in heaven. And then Jesus says, and the very hairs of your head are numbered. So, a relatively worthless sparrow doesn't die unless it be by the will of God. And the very hairs of your head are numbered. In context, then, a hair doesn't come out of your head 
unless it be by the will of God. And Jesus is saying, this ought to comfort us. Knowing that your life that looks crazy is, is not as crazy as you think. Because God's on the throne. God's sovereign will is at work. Isaiah 46. Remember the former things, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. Now when you read that phrase... Maybe not you, but me, when I used to read that phrase quickly, declaring the end from the beginning, you know, he's saying, I'm declaring what's going to happen at the start. So the end from the very start, I tell you what's going to happen. And here's why I'm able to do that. From ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. The reason that God can declare the end from the beginning, what's going to happen when it starts, the reason he can do that is because he controls everything in between. That's what it's saying. The bird, the man, and all the stuff in between. That's why he can make this declaration. That's why there's a book of Revelation in your Bible. How can there be a last book in your Bible that says this is the way it's all going to turn out? Here's why. Because God controls everything in between. He created it in the beginning. He tells you how it's going to come out in the end, and God is sovereign with everything in between. Matthew 10, as I've talked about. Acts 4.27 in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. <laughs> so here's Herod and Pilate. Herod and Pilate are criminals. Herod and Pilate, at the great white throne judgment, are going to stand before their Creator. And they are going to give an account for their part in murdering the Messiah. And they are going to be held responsible. And they're going to say, well, wait a minute. He was the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. We're just bit players in this thing. God is going to say, you took the action that you wanted to take because of your sinful hearts. And I used your sinful action to accomplish my purpose. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Revelation 17, God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by grieving their kingdom, by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will all be fulfilled. So we sometimes, you know, say, God, we, I know God knows everything. God knows how it's going to come out. And this is the way we think of it. Just like with the hairs of the head, we think God's brain is just this big computer that can store all this infinite amount of information. But as I've tried to point out, it's more than that. It's not just that he knows it, it's that he planned it. So what we think is, you know, God has the ability to kind of look down through time and know what's going to happen, and then having seen what's going to happen, he recorded it in the book, but he has the ability to just know what's going to happen. Now think about it. Just think about it for a second. When we say God looks down through time, what we're kind of saying is God has got this real going. He's, he's able to watch the movie. He's able to get a preview, right? And as he gets a preview and he watches what's going to happen, he records it and says, I saw the movie. This is how it turns out. 
But see, that's not the way it is, is it? It's not just that God saw the movie and knows how it's going to turn out. God's the director and producer of that movie. God didn't just get a sneak preview. He made the movie. That's the sovereignty of God. So there's the sovereign will of God, and it is top of page 4, whatever comes to pass. It is sovereign because it is completely controlled by God. The Second London Baptist Confession of 1689. I I love to just throw that in there. Because, you know, sometimes folks will hear me teach the Bible because everything I've just said is the Bible. And they go, that is, that is that newfangled God sovereignty Calvinist kind of stuff. Well, so much for the newfangled piece of it. <laughs> this would be 1689, which would be a while ago. Second London Baptist Confession almost word-for-word identical to the Westminster Confession of Faith of 1646. God has decreed in Himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will freely and unchangeably all things which shall ever come to pass. And friends, it's hard to get our mind. We can't get our minds around that. What we must do is God has taken pains in lots of places in His Word to say, this is who I am and this is how I control my world. So we must humbly accept what God has said and declare what what God has, has said. And He says, I have decreed all things which shall, shall ever come to pass. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11, and this is just a helpful way for us to, to put that together. God's sovereign will then can be summarized as this, what God has chosen to allow, but it's hidden, known only to God. When do we know God's sovereign will? After it happens. So if you're talking about God's sovereign will and you say, you know, I'd like to know God's will, if you want to know God's sovereign will for today, you ask me tomorrow. And it's whatever happened. Okay. It's hidden, known only to God, and it cannot be missed and therefore does not need to be pursued. You can't miss the sovereign will of God. (laughs) That's moving forward. So when I talk about pursuing God's will, I'm not talking about knowing God's plan, which is unknowable until after the fact. Every event is within God's sovereign will. So there is God's sovereign will. But then there is what you and I must concentrate on. We must know about God's sovereign will so that we can have comfort in the apparent chaos of our lives, knowing that it is not chaotic, contrary to appearances. In reality, God is in control. So it's helpful for us to know. It's crucial for us to know. That's why God tells us about it. But we must act upon not the sovereign will of God, because I don't know it until after the fact, but rather the moral will of God. And God's moral will is that which He desires in accordance with His character and His being. Gary Friesen, in that book that is mentioned in the resources, puts it this way, the moral will of God is the expression in behavioral terms of the character of God. The imperatives, that is the commands of God's moral will, touch every aspect and moment of life. And this is so because they prescribe the believer's goal and attitudes as well as his actions. And that is what God has given us in his word, in scripture, is his moral will. So 1 Timothy 2, God will have all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. 
Or 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now you look at those two verses. They are expressions of God's moral will, that is, that which He desires, an expression of His character, what He is like. So you see passages like that. You know, 1 Timothy 2 uh, God would have all men to be saved. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So that means that it's God's moral will, His desire. That's an expression of His character. That's what all things being equal, men not being hardened sinners in protracted rebellion against God, God wants to see them all come to Himself. But do they? Do all people come to a knowledge of the truth? Do even most people come to a knowledge of the truth? Narrow is the way, says Jesus, that leads to life. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Not only don't most, don't, don't all, most don't, do not. So what does it mean then, First Timothy 2, that God would have all men to come to a knowledge of the truth, that God is not willing that any should perish. If that's a statement of His sovereign will, then guess what? Then everybody comes. Because what God sovereignly decrees happens. But this is a statement of God's moral will, a statement of His character. This is what God is like. God takes no pleasure, Ezekiel says, in the death of the wicked. God is not a God who, who loves the idea, likes the idea of people perishing. And so it is not his desire. It is not his moral will. It's not what he is like. But people do. It's not part of his sovereign plan that everyone should be saved. It's amazing that it's part of his sovereign plan that any should be saved, given our sin. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Then it goes on to talk about being sexually pure. So this is the moral will of God made known to you. So we've had the sovereign will of God summarized at the top of page 4. Now the moral will can be summarized as this is what pleases God. It's what has been made known, revealed. This can be missed and must be pursued. And a given event may or may not be within God's moral will, unlike His sovereign will. Every event fits into God's Now, the key distinction between God's sovereign and moral will is this, revelation, revealing, making known. God's sovereign will is revealed after the fact, while God's moral will is revealed in Scripture. God's plan, His sovereign will, is known only to Him. God's desire, His moral will, has been given in Scripture. Deuteronomy 29, 29, at the bottom of page 4, captures both of those in one verse. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. What would that be? That would be God's sovereign will. I don't know what that is. I don't know what that is for this afternoon. I don't know what that is for this, this coming week. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. So there's these two aspects, if you will, of God's will, sovereign and moral. 
But some have said, as I mentioned at the beginning, that God has three wills. Does he? I already said no earlier, so we can skip this whole section. But we do have to wait on this section because according to my iPhone, remember I don't have a watch, it is 12.01. I appreciate the fact that it being 12.01 according to my iPhone, I saw nobody going like this and see too many people walk out, so thank you all for your indulgence. But we will pick up on page 5 then next week. I encourage you to bring those notes back with you as we plow through them over the next few weeks, okay? Let's pray. Ask the Lord to go with us. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given us the light and lamp that is Scripture so that we who would otherwise wander about and wander aimlessly and not know why we're here and not know what it is we are put here to accomplish and not know how to accomplish it, save for your revelation in your word. Thank you for Holy Scripture. Thank you for the Bible. And Lord, we we thank you that you have made the Bible accessible, understandable to us, to tell us in your commands and in your precepts and in your principles how to behave in our day-to-day lives and how to make choices. Help us over these next few weeks as we try to mine your word and try to make applications so that we can make decisions that honor you. Go with us this week, and we ask you to grant us safety and bring us back next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.